Hello, and thank you for tuning into Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, your host, and the clinical microbiologist and the chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. For today's episode, we welcome Kayla Erickson from our product management team at Mayo Clinic Laboratories for a test and focus interview. Thanks for that introduction, Dr. Pritt. Today, we're actually going to be discussing T-cell lymphomas with Dr. Andrew Feldman. But before we really get started talking about this disease state, Dr. Feldman, could you provide us with a little bit of background about you and your role here at Mayo Clinic? Sure. I did my training at the National Cancer Institute, where I spent a number of years conducting laboratory research to better understand cancer biology, and then dated NCI for my pathology residency followed by a hematopathology fellowship with a focus on the pathology of lymphomas. And I joined Mayo in 2006. So your work at Mayo Clinic, you're involved in the clinical side in that you're reading all of these patient cases as a hematopathologist, but you also have a research focus as well. Is that specific to T-cell lymphomas? Yes, it is. I spend about 50% of my time in the lab uh, running a research program trying to better understand the pathogenesis and potential treatment of T-cell lymphoma, and the other half of my time in uh, diagnostic work, almost all on lymphomas. That's interesting. That gives you a very unique perspective, being that you're involved kind of in both sides of that. So as we talk about T-cell lymphoma, can you just give myself and our listeners kind of a brief overview of this disease state? Very generally, T-cell lymphoma is really a group of cancers derived from T-cells, which are cells of the immune system that play a critical role in immune function. They help fight infections, uh, such as viruses, and also fight against tumor cells in patients with cancer. But when the T-cells become altered, for example, by chromosomal abnormalities, they themselves can become cancerous and develop into T-cell lymphoma. So one important thing to realize is, although we use the term T-cell lymphoma, it's not a single disease, but it's really a name for a wide variety of diseases that have different pathologic and clinical features. So as pathologists, we use a system endorsed by the World Health Organization, or WHO, to classify lymphomas. Right now, the WHO lists over 30 subtypes of T-cell lymphoma. So it's quite a complex classification system. And most T-cell lymphomas are aggressive, but there's a wide variability in outcomes and some subtypes have an excellent prognosis. So accurate diagnosis and classification is critical. One thing that has really impeded our understanding of the disease is the fact that T-cell lymphomas in general are rare. They're about 10 to 15% perhaps of non-Hodgkin lymphomas. So B-cell lymphomas are, are by far more common. And so what that's meant is from a research standpoint, we don't understand T-cell lymphomas as well because it's harder to do large series to understand the molecular biology as well as the clinical characteristics in clinical trials of these patients. And from a pathology standpoint, it means at individual institutions, many pathologists don't see as many of these cases because they're rare. And so it takes longer to become familiar with the various intricacies of the classification system in most practice settings. So Dr. Feldman, I find it really interesting as you you kind of talk about this disease state, I didn't realize there were 30 subtypes of T-cell lymphoma. I mean, that does definitely add to the complexity of this. 
So can you talk to me really about what are the different tests and assays that you use to subclassify into those 30 types and give our patients an accurate diagnosis? So the major tools for correct diagnosis and classification of T-cell lymphomas are first and foremost, morphology. What we see down the microscope is still the first line for diagnosis in the context of appropriate clinical information. And that's important to add, particularly in T-cell lymphoma, where many of the subtypes vary in their clinical presentation. For example, there's a whole group of T-cell lymphomas that present primarily in the skin. And those have distinct pathological subtypes and distinct clinical features, as well as treatments and prognostic information. And so having the correct clinical information is uh, critical to proper classification. So step one is morphology in the microscope and clinical information, followed by phenotyping. In the vast majority of cases, that's by immunohistochemistry, which we do very extensively here at Mayo. In some types of T-cell lymphoma, flow cytometry also plays a very important role. For example, some types of T-cell lymphoma are actually leukemic. They're primarily found in the blood. And in those diseases, flow cytometry can be very important. The next level of testing is at the genetic or molecular level. Fluorescence in situ hybridization, or FISH, plays a prominent role in classification of T-cell lymphomas, as well as molecular assays. The most common molecular assays that we do right now are T-cell receptor gene rearrangement studies for clonality, and that's often used to distinguish between clonal or neoplastic processes and reactive processes. Later this year, we'll be offering our next generation sequencing panel which will be designed specifically for lymphomas, including T-cell lymphomas, to detect and report a number of mutations that's important in the classification as well as the treatment uh, of T-cell lymphoma. This never ceases to amaze me about hematopathology and hematology and hematologic malignancies in general. There's no one test that answers the questions that we have for these patients. You kind of have to work your way down putting all of these different pieces together. And I always think about it like a puzzle. So as you're going through and and answering these questions and you put this puzzle together for each patient, when should patients be having this testing performed? Do we do it at diagnosis? Are we following these patients? Kind of talk to me about that process as the patient comes in to see their oncologist for these diseases. The process certainly starts at initial presentation. So patients in the upfront setting, when they first present to their clinician, are evaluated by physical exam, by imaging studies often. And then if they come to us as pathologists, they've undergone some sort of procedure to acquire tissue, a biopsy or a needle aspiration, flow cytometry on the blood. And so that starts the process and the utility of the various assays really is done in a subsequent triage-based approach, depending on what the initial findings are. Again, initially based on the morphologic features and the clinical presentation. So Dr. Feldman, it's interesting that you talk about all of these tests that we perform to try to accurately diagnose these patients and that we're using them to give the clinician all of those answers that they need to treat their patients. 
as we come up with that final diagnosis and we give the clinician their answer, how are those results being used in patient care? I've seen a lot of movement in the marketplace lately with new therapies, new gene findings. What are those answers that we're giving those clinicians doing for those patients in the long run? So there's several levels at which the results of our pathologic evaluation impacts clinicians and patients. First is the diagnosis of a T-cell lymphoma or T-cell neoplasm versus a reactive condition. That's become particularly important as the WHO classification becomes more intricate. It's become recognized that there are a number of indolent lymphoproliferative disorders that are neoplastic, they're clonal, but do not behave as overt lymphomas. And that distinction is important because some of these disorders actually don't respond well if they're diagnosed as lymphoma. So an example is there's a new entity called indolent T-cell lymphoproliferative disorder of the gastrointestinal tract that is very debilitating with severe gastrointestinal symptoms can uh, progress to overt lymphoma. But actually, if it's treated as a lymphoma with chemotherapy at the onset, those patients actually do not respond well to chemotherapy and actually may do worse. On the other hand, these lymphoproliferative disorders can resemble reactive lymphoid infiltrates. And so the diagnosis of whether this is neoplastic, whether it's a lymphoproliferative disorder versus a, an overt lymphoma is really critical to the management of the patient. The second level is once a T-cell lymphoma has been diagnosed, accurate classification is critical for therapy. Therapy for most uh, T-cell lymphomas right now consists of systemic combination chemotherapy, but there are differences. So for example, the anti-CD30 immunoconjugate brentuximab vetitin recently was introduced for T-cell lymphomas uh, that co-express a lymphoid activation marker called CD30. And so the use of that agent brentuximab depends on accurate classification and phenotypic characterization of the lymphoma to guide that treatment. Other examples are, uh, for example, there's a group of T-cell lymphomas that the WHO has recently recognized that are of T-follicular helper cell origin. So T-follicular helper cells are a normal subset of T-cells. And T-cell lymphomas that resemble that normal T-cell subset have specific characteristics. And recently it's been suggested, for example, that those patients may respond better to drugs that are epigenetic modifying agents. So as we understand more about the molecular underpinnings of T-cell lymphoma, and as we have more therapeutic options available to us, the correct classification and phenotypic and molecular characterization of these cases becomes more critical. It's just so interesting to me, all the complexities of this and and the nuances that go into making sure that that patient gets put on the right therapy that is actually beneficial for them and, and not harmful in some cases. So last question, just because it's kind of a hot topic right now in the oncology world in general. So Are we monitoring these types of lymphoma patients right now for any sort of minimal residual disease or what kind of monitoring happens for these patients during the course of therapy? As patients are being treated and after therapy concludes, patients are typically monitored through clinical examination and imaging, but minimal residual disease testing is coming for lymphoma. 
It hasn't reached the same kind of standard of clinical practice as it has in many leukemic diseases, but it's something that's coming. And I anticipate that testing for uh, minimal residual disease in lymphoma will become commonplace in the relatively near future. Oh, that's very interesting. And I look forward to that, especially hearing you talk about how some of these therapies are being very successful for these patients. It'll be good to see what does that progression-free survival look like? And what is that patient quality of life right after they've gone through these therapies? I, I, I really enjoy hearing that we're having this increased successes. So one last question for you before I let you go. You've done a lot of research in the T-cell lymphoma space. It's obviously um, something that's really near and dear to your heart. You also see a lot of consults and our team sees a lot of consults on T-cell lymphomas just because of our expertise in this area. Just really quickly tell me about all of the work that you've done. What's the one thing that really stands out to you as like, this was that thing that you found or that, that driver of what, what brings you to work every day that you just are really always excited about? One of the main things our team has been focused on in the laboratory has been understanding the molecular underpinnings of a subtype of T-cell lymphoma called anaplastic large cell lymphoma. And one of the things that we've been doing is trying to understand how genetics can help us stratify that disease better in terms of what cell it originates from, the prognosis of various genetic subtypes, and how that could lead to alterations of therapy. Previously, anaplastic large cell lymphoma was generally grouped into ALK-positive and ALK-negative subtypes. The ALK-positive group tends to occur in children, has a relatively favorable outcome, in addition to chemotherapy and brentuximab vetitin, also can be treated with ALK tyrosine kinase inhibitors. The ALK negative group has done worse and has been more challenging. So one of the main objectives of our team has been to stratify those cases with more precision. And so we've introduced testing now for two genetic chromosomal rearrangements, both of which can be detected by fish testing one of a gene called DUST22. And DUST22 rearrangements identify a subgroup of ALK-negative anaplastic large cell lymphoma that generally has favorable outcomes. And these tumors also have a variety of molecular characteristics that suggest uh, that uh, they really are unique. They have unique gene expression signatures. They have commutations that are unique and other features like uh, DNA methylation patterns. The current treatment guidelines include the option of treating uh, patients without negative ALCL with uh, DUST22 rearrangements according to a de-intensified therapy regimen because of the favorable prognosis in that subgroup. And so much of the morbidity and quality of life issues for patients with lymphoma is related to the intensity of chemotherapy. So if we can identify patients with favorable outcomes and de-intensify their chemotherapy regimens, that can substantially improve quality of life for patients. Another rearrangement that we've identified involves the TP63 gene, which is related to P53, which is a well-known tumor suppressor. These rearrangements are associated with very, very aggressive clinical behavior. They're rare, but those patients who have TP63 rearrangements generally fail conventional therapy. So this has become important as a prognostic marker to identify patients who may have a very aggressive clinical course, potentially considering inclusion in clinical trials of new agents. And so we also now offer 
the TP63 fish test for identifying that rearrangement here in the clinic. So to see something go from a laboratory approach and research-based molecular profiling to clinical application is one of the main reasons we do what we do here. Immunohistochemistry is essential for accurate diagnosis and classification of T-cell lymphoma. And really a broad panel of antibodies is necessary. As we learn more about the molecular features of various T-cell lymphoma subtypes, additional antibodies become necessary. So to give one example, the WHO now defines a group of T-cell lymphomas based on their origin from T-follicular helper cells, which is a specific type of T-cells. And we're currently using five antibodies to assess for a T-follicular helper cell phenotype, CD10, PD-1, BCL-6, ICOS, and CXCL-13. And that's in addition to the general T-cell antigens and other immunophenotypic markers that we use in the evaluation of T-cell lymphoma. So that's one example of the complexity of the type of immunohistochemical workup that we're doing and that, that really is required to accurately classify uh, tumors according to the current WHO classification. And that classification can be extremely important for therapy. So for example, recent data suggests that patients with this group of T-cell lymphomas derived from T-follicular helper cells may respond better to epigenetic modifying agents than patients with other types of T-cell lymphomas. So this not only is important for classification based on the WHO system, but it actually may, may be important to stratify patients to receive appropriate therapy. Dr. Feldman, I'm just absolutely in awe of everything that goes into the workups for these patients. And hearing you talk about it, you can definitely hear the passion in your voice. And it's on that research side with everything that you're bringing to the table, but also with every patient that comes through our door. It sounds like every single patient gets this very personalized approach from our HEMPATH team in order to be able to accurately diagnose them and then stratify them based on those WHO classifications. Thank you for your time today. And thank you for talking with us. I really, really appreciate it. I'm just really excited to see more of what comes out of this team and comes out of your research in this space as well. Kayla, thanks so much for inviting me to do this. It's really a pleasure to talk with you. It was my pleasure as well. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday.